Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com Everything is personal right here Everything is personal right here Everything is personal right here Let me handle the N-A Heat guaranteed when you press in the play Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. I, I don't even know where to begin. I'm, I'm so excited and I don't want to overemphasize my excitement because uh, we have a guest on our show that he doesn't know this, but he's been a mentor and a role model for me for many, many, many years. Uh, so I am privileged and honored to have the CEO of Roughhouse Records, Mr. Chris Schwartz. Just for those of you who don't know Roughhouse Records, just to give you an idea, we're talking about Cypress Hill, we're talking about Crisscross, talking about Fuji's, Nas, Lauren Hill, uh, and there's a list of way more. And I, I, I just want to talk to you for like 10 hours if I can. Maybe we'll break <laughs> it up into two. But Chris, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. And, uh, and thank you for the kind words. And uh, I, I appreciate it. Uh, so let me let me just uh, let me just I, I, there is a question that I've had always. And I know the answer to this because I, I listened. I didn't read your book. I listened to it. I listened to uh, Audible on that, which was By the way, that nothing like me. You know, uh, <laughs> I was about that, you know, the, um, they, when I read his resume, yeah. He was like, he was like, um, you know, he was like very, seemed like very street oriented. He was a beat poet, did all the spoken word and stuff. I thought oh, this guy sounds cool. Like, you know, and this <laughs> sounds nothing like me at all. I listened to, but yeah, it was, I agree. It didn't have your tone. And that's the reason why I didn't even, uh, I didn't do my audiobook yet, but I'm going to do it myself because of that same reason. He didn't capture your essence, but I want to say the name, your name, Chris Schwartz, like for me, uh, I always thought it was Jewish, uh, and I know that you're, you're not. So did that ever come up in the industry as like a Chris Schwartz? Schwartz is a Jewish last name, or it sounds Jewish. That ever come up? At, I, I know Kimberly's like, <laughs> you're going there right away. I don't know. Hey, you know what fascinated me? Yeah. It, I, it was like the crazy thing is that people who thought I was Jewish, like people I knew for 25 years, they thought I was Jewish. 
right? right? And I was like, I said, okay, um, think about this. How many Jewish mothers name their kids Chris? None that I know. That's <laughs> All a good right? point. <laughs> so, and Chris isn't even my first name. Allison, my first name is Allison. Chris was right. my middle name. Yeah, so, um, yeah, that, <laughs> I, did, you, I used to marvel at that. I used to marvel at the fact that, Chris? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's just so funny. But it could have been a, a middle. But you're absolutely right. Like people don't think about it. Like, oh, he's a Schwartz. He's what he's one of us. We can get a he's part of the music industry, you know, Jewish people and all that stuff. So I I, I wanted to get that out of the way right away because there was something <laughs> you like that? <laughs> Kimberly. We just we're going, the we're heart there. of the matter. <laughs> we're going there right away. All right. So um I want to start with your book. There's so many things that we have in common, uh, but one of the things that I read about or listened in your book was the abuse that you went through. So uh, you're one of 10 children, correct? Right. All right. Uh, number seven, if I'm, if I remember correctly. All right. Yeah. Uh, seven boys, three girls. So I have, uh, I have um, uh, six older brothers, I have um, six older brothers and sisters. So two older sisters, four older brothers, two younger brothers, a younger sister. I mean, I, I I came from an abusive uh, household, uh, mostly from my dad. So I right. have a little bit of re- relationship there. Your abuse was the one story that you told in the book about your brother, and uh, I think there was you. So you were playing football, but he tackled you and broke you in pieces. I mean, I, I, I had tears streaming down listening to that because it felt I felt your pain. And uh, I mean, obviously you weren't uh, speaking about, it, but I, I could the words that you were using, man, that was such a powerful experience that you went through in your life. Can you talk about how that affected, like, not just your life, but your career and the choices you, you made in life? Um, yeah, I, um, so the, the, as you saw and read in the book, my, my, my big thing was, um, like I, I, I had, I wanted to get away from my family so bad. I ran away a couple of times. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, apparently I sucked at running away. One time I ran away with somebody who we got as far as Elkton City, Maryland, and he was bragging to the people that worked in the McDonald's, the girl behind Redshirt, that we were, you know, running away. The next thing you have the cops show up, right? And we're back to Bethlehem. <laughs> but, um, but, um, you know, I, it's, it's, you know, it, it's, and it's, it's very hard. See, look, a lot of people grow up with like older brothers and sisters who are assholes, right? It's, it's common. You know, I grew up in an area with a lot of big families, a lot of Catholic families, right? You go to somebody's house, somebody's always getting killed, right? The difference in this situation was, and I found out later on, you know, right actually when I wrote the book, because I, I heard from a lot of people that sibling, like sibling abuse is actually a lot bigger than I thought it was. I thought it was only me, really, you know? Um, because, you know, I had friends and people that knew the situation and none of them but like completely like like how could your brothers be such assholes, you know? And you know, the thing is, is that um I wanted how it affected me in terms of like my career and everything is that I wanted to get the fuck out of there, right? When I was um uh, like I joined the Navy the day I turned 17, right? Um, and I didn't even tell people, right? I just um did it because you know, there were there were a couple of times in, in one brother in particular, the one I didn't want to be alone in the, in the house with, because quite honestly, I feared for my life around him. You know, he he you know, the the, the two brothers above him 
they used to do some horrible things to me, but you know, I just knew, okay, I'm getting my ass kicked. Right. I'm going to get my ass beat and it's going to suck. Right. But with him, he, uh, he had a tendency. He didn't pull his punch. Like, you know, he, I always felt like he was in it for keeps, you know? And I always, I was always afraid that one day he was going to accidentally kill me. Right. And, um, and that's like one of the biggest reasons I, I, I just had to get out of the house because he had like serious fucking anger issues, you know, and it was, it was scary. And um, but getting leaving. So now, like, you know, I, I have I have horrible uh, um, social skills. You know, I, I didn't know how, I didn't know how to talk to people. You know, my tongue hang out of my mouth. I had a horrible lisp in this whole thing. And now I'm 17. I'm in the Navy. Right. Um, so, yeah. So, I, so now I'm in the Navy, right? And the Navy was like, it's not like Marine or, or Army boot camp, you know. Basically, the Navy is about showing you how to live on board a ship, right? It's about fire control systems and fighting fires and staying in, you know. So, um, but, you know, so now I'm like the youngest guy in the, in the training unit. I've got horrible posture, right? And the, uh, the, the, the thing is, is that, but the one thing I had uh, was that I had the ability to, um, to, to talk about music, right? Because I was a, I was like, you know, I absorbed every album cover. I knew every, everything. And there wasn't anything I didn't know. I had a voluminous knowledge of music when I was um, that age. I knew R&B, I knew it all. And so I found that it was such a great common denominator, a great icebreaker. And soon I found myself like, you know, in these conversations and talking to people and then you know, really getting into the conversation and having people like listening there and, talk, and showing like, wow, this kid really knows the shit, you know, giving me like, you know, respect, you know, and then feeling of being treated like a human being. And then it was there that I realized like, wow, I mean, I'm not the fucked up one because that's, you know, when you, when you've endured this since you were a child, right. You, you start to conjure up ideas that like that, you know, because look, it, like anything else, you know, my one brother, Kevin, who was like a, a complete hostile fucking asshole. Um, he, you know, my father traveled all day, right. My mother was a, um, was an alcoholic, you know, drug addict who was always in a, um, you know, uh, uh, basically a, a um, incapacitated state. So my brother, Kevin, basically saw this opportunity of like, well, I'm going to be the disciplinary figure. I'm going to, you know, make sure everybody's taken care of. What it really was is that he just wanted to work it to his own advantage, you know? So everybody would be like at his beck and call to do his bidding and to, to take care of him and keep him in comfort, right? And then there was this, you know, and so, and so Kevin you know, would make these proclamations about me. And there was always proclamations being made about me that I was like this, this, you know, there was like thing, there was something wrong with me. Right. And the only thing that was wrong with me is that, you know, I wasn't really into sports like they were, you know, I wasn't a jock and uh, I had other suits that were pursuits that were more, you know, of a, of a, you know, of an intellectual nature. I used to, you know, I drew, I was an artist. I, I, you know, I played guitar. I, I read, I read books like cover to cover. You know, it's funny. I can't ever think of once growing up that I ever saw any of my older brothers read a book. Not yeah. once, you know, it was one of those type of families. So, so, um, so yeah, so that's, that's what, 
so so getting away at 17 and and having this kind of like uh, realization about myself, right? Then kind of put me on this trajectory of like like okay, this is all manageable. This world is manageable. I'm not going to let it break me. I'm going to now now I'm going to try and and you know and um do things that you know that 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 draw my inclinations and my interests and everything like that. And so I, I, it basically, I had this very, um, you know, driven idea, you know, in the Navy, I was going to be a musician, right? That was my whole thing. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to uh, move to LA after this. I'm going to play in bands and I'm going to, something's going to happen. Right. Well, Well, when you were, when you were escaping out of your home, uh, First of all, being in Philly and not being in the sports, I can see where, you know, somebody would be like, oh, this guy, he's this and that because he's not into sports because it's big sports town, Eagles and all, all the sports. But because you were running out of your house, uh, you got to you got a chance to connect with somebody who is like minded and you got more into music and you got more into playing and listening to other albums, etc. I think I remember, uh, you know, that in your book. Correct. Prior to yeah. going to the Navy. Yeah, no, that that was the, that was the whole thing. I, uh, I, you know, I got back. So, I thought I was going to stay in in, in 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 California, and um, I called my my childhood friend who was a drummer, and now by this time I had amassed a bunch of equipment. I had a synthesizer, I had a set of vibraphones, guitar because I was a Zappa fan. I like fusion and jazz and all that stuff. And he started telling me about he's saying doing the same thing. Right. He's got, you know, electronics and, you know, electronic music and all this stuff. And he basically we got into this long conversation. And I said, you know what? I said, what, what, what if I come back there and we put something together? Right. And then I, I, I remember I, uh, I, I basically because it was the day I had to decide my ticket of where I was going to go. And um, I, I came back to Philadelphia and we we formed a group playing electronic music. And um, that was the. That was kind of like the 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 genesis of of what was to come because um, you know we we did gigs. Remember WXPN, Diaspar, Stars End, uh, John D. Liberto, Kim Haas, Gina Wong. Um, so we played a bunch of shows with them. Um, our music was on. You know, li- literally within a week and a half of getting back from the Navy, one of our you know we did we made a cassette and it got played like twice a week on WXPN, right? like a 12 minute song. Right. So, so, um, it was doing this. We kind of, um, we joined a bigger band that was kind of like a, a, a talking heads, um, thing. It was called rhythm lines and, um, really excellent musicians, great singer and all that. But we, Jeff and because you know we had done a bunch of gigs, like uh, we did a bunch of shows opening up for pretty poison and the bells and those groups. Do you remember <laughs> And yeah. <laughs> I saw these groups like, you know, pretty poison way from pretty poison literally replicated our whole rig, right? Our whole rig, even down to the stands and, you know, the, the 808, the sequential circuit, all that stuff. Right. And then he basically goes out and they make that song nighttime. And then they do catch me Out falling. That's what Jeff and I, that's like, that was what we wanted to do. Right. The problem with the band was, they wanted everything to be in these odd time signatures and all that. And it was basically, okay, so are you playing for your friends? Or are you playing to, to try and get a record deal and make it happen? So we left that group 
and we still put, put, kept playing the you know the you know the experimental and the you know, electronic music, but um, we we started getting into like really more commercial dance music, right? And we were we had the one group, and we had a girl, wonderful singer. She sounded like Tina Marie, and she played saxophone. We were doing gigs at the Gallery Mall. Now, if you remember the Gallery Mall was a mall that was, uh, you know, predominantly frequented by the African-American community. So it was very bizarre for us to be playing there because it was just, you know, I remember people would walk up, they'd look at us for like, they put their bags down for like a whole 10 seconds and pick up and walk away, right? That's, a, that's how bad it was, right? But, um, but there was a group of kids who were like watching us. And I, I'll never forget, they were kind of like standing, talking amongst themselves. And what I found out later on, they were trying to decide who's going to come up and talk to us, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so they come up and they 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 asked if we could do drum programs for them. And they said they're they're a rap group. And we're like, all right, yeah. So they came over to our house that weekend, and I um I started you know, I started doing program you know doing drum programs for hip hop because remember at the time in, in Roland Roland TR eighty eight nobody had one. We we got ours as it was a, like a prototype, and um. And that's kind of what begot the whole, you know, um, you know, thing into hip hop. You know, what, what, what year was that? Uh, approximate that was nineteen eighty one. Yeah, early eighties. Yeah, I think Got yeah, nineteen eighty one. Yeah. Well, no, 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 no. You know what? I take that back. I take that back. That had to have been the beginning. That had to be actually the end of eighty two. And the reason being is because we had actually gotten the eight oh eight. Like in the, in the, I think we got it like November of, we got it right like before they were commercially available and they came out in 81. They're only out for three years, right? So, so, um, then you know, we did the whole thing with the band, like, and that was well over a year, right? And then we started doing the programming for the rap groups and, you know, and I end up, um, you know, hip hop groups and I end up uh, working at uh, Virtue Studios on North Broad Street. And um, yeah, so that's. Uh, but the question started with how did my how did the the abuse I endured at the hands of my siblings how how what part did it play into into what I'm doing now? And it actually played a pretty big part, you know, um, because it, it's you know I I I I, I always look back and say nothing when I was in boot camp, right? I loved it. I loved it. It was like it was nothing compared to like at home. Like I was like you know. Everybody, they come in the morning, they throw trash cans down the down the floor of the barracks and everything, and people wake up ah, like this. <laughs> I'm still asleep, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, I and I, I completely understand because music was my solace too. Through my, I like I couldn't fall asleep, and I was always a uh, my my dad. If I oversleep a little bit, he will come and come over and pour cold water on me. So I was always, was always like, and music was my thing. I, I'd sit there and I'd listen to my radio, have my little tape recorder, and I record radio and I make tapes and splice them together. So I definitely understand what what you kind of went through in, in a certain way. Uh, the, the one question, uh, and we'll move on from family, but after you became successful and was a musician and all the things you achieved, did, did your family like? come to your shows that your brothers see you. Oh, you know, this kid really made it. Did that well, relationship change? Well, let me, let me just, uh, before I do that, let me just give you the, uh, the just to qualify this, uh, not all of my family were, were, it was only 
it was really the three brothers, right? It, it, it was um, it was three. Of my I had four older brothers. Three of them were just like like you know assholes, right? So um, the one that I told you about, the youngest of of them, the one who 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 I you know I like I said, I thought he would be the one who eventually killed me, right? Um, he was like when I started out trying to make it in the record business, right? My father was very supportive of me, right? Because now my father's like in like semi-retired and everything. He works in a mattress store. And, you know, every little thing that happened, like if I got something in the newspaper, he would clip it and put it over his desk and everything like that. But it was very important to my brother, John, to basically to, to tell everybody, oh, yeah, yeah, he's a flake, you know, blah, 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 right? So, so there wasn't going to be any, um, there was any, it wasn't going to be any, any, any play with him. And then my, my oldest brother, who was uh, one that, you know, I had a lot of problems with, um, he was like, uh, no matter how successful I got, he was somehow convinced that, uh, I was being taken advantage of because I was too stupid to be doing, you know what I mean? Uh, right, right, right. You know, and it's like, like. You know, my partner was a uh, was, a, was a producer in the studio, Joe Nicola, right? Yeah. And the first thing I uh, the first time I talked to my this oldest brother in like in years, and his um, and I said something like my partner Joe, and he goes, "Oh yeah, so like what? Like you do all the work, and he shakes it, he shakes everybody's hand, and does all the deals." <laughs> I, I never, I'll never forget how insulting that was. You know, like it's like what you don't you don't think I had the the mind to do this? You know, like. And the thing is, nobody, you can't really tell anybody how difficult this business is unless they've tried it, right? Fortunately for me, right, I would say this. There's a very likely chance that if I'd have known how unlikely all this would have been, I may not have tried. I, I don't know. You know what I mean? Uh, I do know this, that um, when I was um, 15 I was reading a book and it was a book that was written, you know, it's 1975, right? So this was a book that was totally apropos for 1975, right? We're talking about 1975. Yeah. Phil Nicolo and I the other day. And like, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a music store in Wayne. You ever been to Wayne PA? Yeah, of course. I used to, I used to work out on Wayne for a little bit. All right. So do you know, you know, the Wayne, remember the Wayne music store? Of course. All right. So in the seventies, they had a yellow page ad, right? And at the bottom, so Wayne Music, blah, 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 blah. At the bottom of the ad, and it's crazy. I never, it says, it said, reasonably knowledgeable, basically honest, right? So <laughs> that was the age of when, that's when the, the uh, advertising agencies and everything were for trying to figure out a way to talk to kids, right? Yeah, right. So, so they took the ad, they took the tack that, you know what? Let's make these kids think that like, you know what? Hey, these guys are being straight up, right? They, they're right. they're gonna they're gonna kind of they're gonna kind of fuck us a little bit, but it's not like we're gonna go to the cops or anything, you know? It's right. like right. They're like reasonably knowledgeable. We're basically honest, right? Yeah. So, so um, so so uh, yeah. So this book was how to make it in the music business, right? Uh-huh. And <laughs> it was for musicians, right? So. It had stuff in there like, you know, your meeting with the record company. Now, remember, comb your hair because <laughs> you might think this sounds square, but you're asking this man to invest a lot of money in you, you know? So, like, 
right? So in the beginning of the book, and I'll and I'll just I'll make this part short. In the beginning of the book, they went through a a, a whole description of how competitive it is and, and the failure rate, this and that. But at the very end of this like half page of like all these dire warnings and like, you know, only sturdy men of sound, you know, spirit and <laughs> conviction should end, you know, at the very end, so crowded, blah, blah. But there's always room for you. <laughs> so so anybody, you. anybody can go. Don't worry about all that. Never mind. Right, so I think, all right, well, there's room for me, right? So, um. So yeah. Um. Right, so let me let me go and and ask you. There's so many parallel paths where our paths have crossed in some way. So I'm going to start with the the first one. Not necessarily a cross path, but just because I'm wearing this gentleman's shirt. Uh, and also uh, one of my favorite people I've ever had. Like it was a huge huge get uh, for my podcast, Mister uh, Schooly D. So. If you can tell us a little bit, uh, you managed Schooly D. The question I had: Did you have to deal with his mom first? Was that was that the rule in uh, Schooly D's house that you had to get his mom's approval? No, no. His mom was cool as like can be. She was a lovely, lovely woman. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, he actually told me very recently that you know, because look, you know, he didn't make it easy when I first met him. Right. <laughs> uh, he, uh, you know, you've read the story, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. And we were, we, we were supposed to have a meeting and then, you know, and it was like, he wouldn't show up and everything. And so we finally had a meeting with his attorney, Warren Hamilton. And I said, look, man, I said, you know, this is what you have going on, right? You have this, 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 and that, right? But what you should have is this, you know? And, um, I, um, and I, and I think after, after I left the meeting, I know he said that Warren talked to me and said, you know, he goes, this guy kind of knows what he's talking about. Now, Schooley tells a story about, you know, that that when he would go to, uh, you know, independent distributors and try to get his record press, pressing plants, he felt that, like, nobody would help him because he's this young African-American kid and they, they don't think he's going to be able to pay his bill or like whatever, whatever reason, right? He goes, but wow, I walked in there with Chris and they were like, yeah, you know, but it wasn't it wasn't that easy, though, right? I mean, it was um, it was difficult. But, you know, the thing is, I think after hanging out at, at his house, when he was still kind of like we were still in that, like, you know, initial dating period. Right. Uh, he said that his mother told him, she said, you know what? She goes, that man cares about what he does yeah. and working with you and everything like that. He just seems that like, you know, he's got that idea of like wanting to make it happen and you know he's gonna look out for you and everything like that and uh and so here we are 40 years later well i'm still working with well him. i read i read somewhere first of all for those of you don't don't know uh schooly d according to ice t and many many other uh okay you know, according to the to, to ben's uh to according to soren baker yeah you're right yeah he's uh he's he, he no but he is though he is the inventor of the genre yeah. because before before psk gucci time in gangster boogie yeah there was there, there was not one record in the in the hip hop um, genre that you could call a gangster hip hopper. I completely agreed. Yeah. So I'm just saying there's a lot of people that don't know and they should know because that's right. that's the man. But one of the things I read somewhere, and I'm paraphrasing uh, uh, Schooly D, but he said that you basically told him what his future is going to be like. He said somewhere that uh, Chris came in and said. 
I'm going to change the game. I'm going to perform for white kids in suburban neighborhoods and these uh, festivals. And and I, I'm going to all the things that you kind of laid out for him. He basically said came true. So, uh, yeah, I remember reading something like that. Well, well, it was he is the thing that 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 record PSK Gucci time. Right. It was big in the hip hop world. It was big. I mean, it got mad respect in the right places. But also, what I what I realized is that you know, I gave there was a it was Philly Metropool, right? Philly Metropool probably had I don't know, I want to say thirty five white DJs and maybe five or six black DJs, right? And it was so bizarre. I gave them the record thinking that I wasn't going to get much play out of this, right? And next thing you know, that record, by giving it to Philly Metropole, made its way like over to London and over to uh, Amsterdam and everything. And it just like exploded. And the thing is, is that I, and it's like one of those type of records that it got like massive, massive play in white clubs. People were like loving it. And so, and, and that was another, the, like, kind of like a paradox is that when we, um, when he signed with Jive Records, um, Jive is a great, great record label. I mean, there's no doubt about it, you know? And uh, the guys, people that worked there were like, was, were, were top, top of the line record executives. But they do, this is what they do. They market and they sell black music to black radio at the time, right? Well, Schooley, you know, his audience was predominantly white, right? And so they didn't know how to market to the alternative audience. And, and when I, by the time I got to Columbia Records, I was a pro at it, right? But the, um, but the thing is, is that they really, really wanted him to do a record for black radio. And that kind of like, I think that kind of fucked him up a little bit because you know, he, he's a black artist, right? But he's doing music that has a very wide appeal to alternative, you know, white audience, right? Same kids that listen to the Beastie Boys and everything like that. And now it's like, yeah, but we need you to do a record for black radio. And it's like, like, how do I do that? Well, how do you, you know yeah, I mean? I mean, he's doing his music. And like, <clears throat> the first time I heard, I, I was going to school, uh, it was called the High School of Engineering and Science located on 17th and Norris. So for those of you that don't know, it's like deep in the heart of North Philly, which is, uh, you know, a pretty uh, urban area. And the kids I was hanging out with, you know, the Gucci time. And I was like, holy shit, it blew my mind. But never yeah. did I connect as like, how do you make a record for white audience, black audience? It was uh, it was hip hop. And it was just it was a cool record. Yeah, for sure. It was all. You know, it's funny. It really was. Where you come right down to it in terms of what hip hop was about and everything, because let's face it, up to that record, most hip hop music, there was some really corny shit going on, you know. And and it's like it was like Stu, like UTFO and Houdini. I, I like I could I couldn't get down with any of it, right? And so I, I feel like I feel like it was one of those records that just you know it it was applicable to so many kind of like subgenres in, in in terms of the consumers and the fans and everything. And um, so we, you know, now it's like he's, I got him playing in clubs, right? And it's like, 
you know, kids with spiked hair and wearing kilts and like combat boots. He's never seen anything like this, you know. And um, but the 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 the, <laughs> the big the hard, the big transition was that he um he would um essentially um you know when you when you did hip hop back then as it sometimes it is now you when you did a show you basically showed up to the club you walked through the crowd you got on stage you did two or three songs and you left that was the show right and those were the shows that were most people like you know there's a lot of um promoters in, in hip hop at the time who were just basically a lot of guys of uh, I say questionable moral fiber. They pay you in like in a trash bag full of your bills and everything. And so, but these rock clubs that he got booked in, these are, you know, national venues that pay a deposit to booking agents and they just have a whole way of doing things, right? So we did our first gig in a, in a, in a rock club and it was the, uh, the place it was in, um, uh, that little town across the river from Manhattan, um, whatever, uh, Newark. Newark. No, it wasn't Newark. Teaneck? It was, uh, what? Teaneck, New Jersey? No, not Teaneck. But, but there was a club there. It was a rock club there. It was very popular, right? And so we went to do the show there. And um, I, you know, I have to say how I opened up the book. You know, um, he, um, we basically... He goes in, he does three songs and I'm talking to somebody and I suddenly hear people like, you know, getting pissed off and like hissing and everything like that. And the place is packed. I turn around and I see him and code <laughs> leaving the stage with the codes, turntables and everything. And it was like, I suddenly occurred to me, it's like, Oh shit. Right. They want 45 minutes to an hour of music. Right. And I go back into the dressing room and, um, and I said, look, man, I said, um, I said, this is going to be like a problem, right? So I leave the dressing room and I go out. And of course, the manager's there and he's got two guys that have like their, their heads look like they're chiseled out of like rock, you know, like, <laughs> you know, crew cuts, you know, these big bouncers. And um, I said, let me, you know, they're really pissed off. And I said, because oh, the other thing is, too, is we made them pay us up front before we went on stage. Because Schooly never did a gig without getting paid up front because, you know, he's been stiff before, right? So, so that guy was taken aback by he had to do that. He had to delay the show to count out the money. And there was other things like uh, Code borrowed a, 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 a needle from him for his uh, Technique 1200s and never and took it, didn't give it back to the guy. So they're like really pissed, right? So I said, well, let me go, let me go talk to him and see if I can get him, you know. And I go back to the dressing room and now they're right behind me. Right. I said, well, hold on. Give me a second. Right. I go in the dressing room. I shut the door. Jesse and code were gone. <laughs> they were gone. And, um, I had, I moved an air conditioner out of this hole at the top of the cinder block wall and crawl out of it, you know? And, um, it is like, you know, but the, it was like things like that. I mean, you know, um, it was really bizarre. And, you know, I didn't appreciate it then, but looking back on it now in retrospect, you know, we did shows, we went to places like, um, you know, Europe, New Zealand, Canada. We were like really the first rap tour because we toured with, uh, you know, Rhythm King and put a tour together, right? And we were there a week before the Run DMC and the Beastie Boys, right? 
and we go, especially Scotland. Scotland was kind of, it was kind of, um, it was, it was brutal because no, there's people like, you know, when we did a show, um, there was probably, you know, out of say four or 500 people who show up, there's probably two of them that were there because they heard there was a rap act, a hip hop act. Right. Um, and you know, people were throwing bottles and cans at us on stage and, you know, and it was just, uh, but I think what was, what was important is that we kind of like were, were, you know, cutting a trail, you know what I mean? Yeah. And making it. Pioneers so, for sure. But, yeah. But go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm no, 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 no. Yeah. This is uh, you. I, I'm, I'm just listening here. Uh, yeah. It's your story. Uh, it's super interesting. But uh, the question I had, Rough House Records, did you meet uh, Joe the Butcher, Nicole, first and then formed Rough House together and then uh, started signing acts or how did that occur in the timeline? I worked for a, um, after I left Virtue uh, recording, I was um, looking at the city paper one day and I was looking at the ads and I saw record company looking for help. Right. And uh, I thought, wow, I actually have experience because I've been working in the studio. I've been going to the pressing plant. Like, you know, we were doing gospel records at Virtue, right? So I um, I called the guy up. I told him, like, I, I knew enough names. I knew enough stuff that he was like, wow, really? Yeah, come on down, right? So I show up and it's uh, it's in West Philly. It's at 50. This is how I met school. Yeah. It's at 52nd Parkside. Parkside, 5-2. Yeah. <laughs> and the, it's a, it was, the address was a daycare center. And I'm like looking at the information. I'm looking at the place, you know, this bit. so I go banging on the doors and these girls says, go around. And this woman answers the door and she goes, uh, who do you, what do you want? I said, I'm here to see Ted wing. She says, hold on. And she slammed the door, right? Standing there. Eventually she says, okay, come in. And they, it was a daycare center. So they had these little chairs that are like 11 inches high. And she goes, you sit there. I'm like, okay. I sat on this little chair and waited for Ted. And uh, so Ted was this guy. He was a um, former prison guard, right? And um, he was always involved in some some type of, you know, um, business. Like, you know, I don't know. He was always trying to, like, he, I wouldn't call him, like, a get, trying to get rich quick guy. But he was definitely one of those people that, that for somehow thought that the music business was all smoke and mirrors, right? So... So he uh, he takes me upstairs on the second and third floors of this place, and I'm I'm in a uh, I'm in an office with crumbling plaster and no heat, no air conditioning, and like in the winter time, I was wearing hats and scarves and gloves and sitting there calling retail, calling you know the black album chart retail, and you know he had these records that you know we had a Bunny Sigler record that was pretty good, uh, a couple other things, but um, you know we went to a session one day at studio four i'd never been there and uh we came in and uh no actually that's wrong i was there once before with uh, eddie d for wds but we went to a um we did a session at, stu at studio four and so i got there before ted and uh our engineer was joe nicolo and uh ted was you know talking about oh yeah i'm doing this deal with mca i'm doing this and doing that and i knew it was all bullshit right but I guess, you know, at some point during this discourse, I rolled my eyes just a little bit. Like Ted didn't see me. I'm just rolling my eyes like, oh my God, I can't believe this guy, right? And Joey saw it, right? 
I looked over and he was like looking at me. He kind of like did, did almost the same thing, right? Because they knew Ted, you know. So, um, so Ted walks out and Joey rolls his chair over to me and the, the, the console. He goes, so he goes, how did you end up working for this guy? I said, well, you know what, man? I said, it's not a dream job, but reality is I'm in the record business and I'm getting paid, right? And I want, you know, I want to start my own record label. And Joe said, you know what? So do I, right? So he gives me his card. And then uh, we go back to the Nice Town Records in West Philly. And about a couple of days later, I come down to Ted's office one day. And this is the day I decided I was going to quit. Because I just, I didn't want to work these bullshit records anymore. And um, I come down and I see these yellow records against the wall. And uh, the records, it was, I pick it up and then the rocket ship on it and everything. It's all gangster boogie. And I was like, oh my God, yeah, I've heard this record, you know, Schoolie D. And um, I said, Ted, what are you doing with these? He goes, oh yeah, Schoolie came in. He wanted me to distribute his records. I told him I wasn't interested. And I was like, huh? Because Schoolie was, you know, he was a real name, like, you know, real artist. And so I went back up to my office I sat there. I waited for Ted's car to leave. I went back down to his office and I got Schoolie's number off his desk and I called him up. That's how I got to know. But we went. So, but then later on, so I worked with Schoolie for for a while, and then later on, I um, I went back to Studio Four to see if I could interest Joe in starting a record label, which he was readily interested. So we had two companies. We had Schoolie D Records, and we had a company with about as ambiguous of a name as you can come up with pyramid productions. Right. But I did, you know, I, uh, I, I licensed James King record. I got uh, the Malico in, in the UK did a lot like, like R and B stuff. And, um, and then, um, basically Schooly signed to jive. And because, because I was Schooly's manager, all these labels wanted to sign Schooly. Every single major label wanted to sign. And, we would go, I'd go to these meetings and, you know, but what happened was Jive offered the most money. So he went with Jive, right? But all the labels that could not sign Schoolie were hiring me to promote their records. And then in turn, they'd hire Joe to mix them, right? So we suddenly became like this. We could look at the Billboard Hot Rap Singles chart and out of 50 records, we could actually show that we were involved in like, 12, 13 of them, right? It ain't given time. So, like, what would happen is that uh, uh, Ruthless Records, you know, um, not Ruthless, that's that's Easy's. The, 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 it's Easy's label, but Brian, uh, Priority, Priority Records, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Brian Turner. Yeah. They hired me to work the first, uh, well, actually, the first first two, N- the NWA EP and the NWA album and the Easy E singles in the album, right? Because Easy E, if you're easy does it, it's it's school E D, right? And so I worked those records, a bunch of other records for labels and everything. And that's what led to us uh basically forming Roughhouse because Wes Hine, who was the owner of Enigma Records, along with his brother Wes uh, Bill Hine, had this company Enigma that was distributed through SEMA, through Capital. And they wanted to get into the hip-hop business. And they through the manager of the dead milkman, they reached out to us and we started, we, you know, we need a name for the label. And we decided that we were going to call the label Rough House. We were sitting in a lawyer's office and uh, there was a rock band, a cassette by a rock band sitting on the table. And the, it was called, 
It was called Roughhouse. So Joey picks it up and he goes, you know, this would be a great name for a label. But it was R-O-U-G-H. I said, you know, but we should change the spelling to R-U-F-F. And so we did the deal with Enigma. We did like the Mac Money Record, a um, couple of things. And, you know, nothing ever came from it. But Rick Chertoff, who was a uh, staff producer for CBS, was producing the Hooters and Tommy Conwell. And so he would come down to our, you know, to Studio Four. And he saw, like, you know, I had School E Records, I had Rough House, and I was constantly doing uh, doing rec- mailers. Like, every day, I had thousands of records going up and down the hallway, right? So Rick would come in and talk to me. And what happened was that Rick uh, tried to get Columbia to, interested in doing a, a boutique label with us. And uh, it didn't happen. And then the head of uh, CBS left, and then the head of Columbia left, and they brought in Tommy Matola and Donnie Einer. And Donnie Iron made Rick the head of A&R. And then he brought me up there one day and we had a meeting with uh, Donnie and Tommy and we decided to do a uh, company together. Now, at the time, I didn't have any any artists, you know, um, but it was a, you know, it was a, it was a cool day, it, as I recall. It, it, didn't, I it didn't take long. The biggest record company in the world. <laughs> I know. Right? First of all, you and had Tommy, to go out and find X. Tommy right? Matola, though, uh, th- that must have been an interesting conversation, uh, knowing his reputation. He was always cool, yeah. you know, like, like the guy, you know, was a cool breeze all the time. Like he always seemed like he was had it together. But, you know, I, 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 I felt like I felt like there were times where he, um, for the most part, the guy, I don't get this, right? So when Lauren, when the miseducation of Lauren Hill blew up, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, it, 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 Miss Lauren Hill, it's one of the biggest it's, a bit, it's an important record, right? Yeah. So she was going to Japan to perform for the Sony executives. I was going with her. So one day, everybody knew about this trip. One day, uh, I get a phone call, and it's like, you know, Tommy Matola's office. They, they, they never call. So I, I, I pick up the phone, and the girl says, hey, Chris, you know, uh, Tommy has a... Uh, he has uh, Danny, um, who's the guy from Taxi? Danny, the, the Danny, Danny DeVito, DeVito yeah. right? Danny DeVito, Jersey Films, wants to have a meeting with you. And then I said, oh, cool. What's the date? And she gives me a date. I said, I can't do it. I'm going to be in Japan with Lauren. She goes, oh, well, we know that. But look, Chris, I'm going to tell you this. Tommy really, really needs you to be at this meeting, right? And, you know, now... I, you know, like, what am I going to do? Because the guy, the guy's like, it's really insisting that I be there. You know, I didn't have any real function on, on, on her, on her trip to, to Japan. So I said, okay, I'll do it. Right. So I canceled my flight and I went down and went into Kevin's office. Kevin Glickman was my in-house attorney. I've known Kevin forever. And I said, yeah, I'm not going to Japan. He goes, really? What's up? I said, I'm going to, uh, I'm having a meeting with uh, Tommy and, uh, and, uh, and Danny DeVito. And he started laughing at me. I said, well, so what's so funny about this? He goes, man, he goes, you wait and see. He goes, I got a thousand bucks. It says that after Lauren's plane takes off, right? And the meeting is the next day. They're going to call you that night and tell you the meeting's canceled, right? I said, that'll never happen. Never happen, right? And lo and behold, the next night, at the studio, six quarter seven, 
Chris, Tommy Mattel's office, right? And I knew it. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> they're actually, they're, they're, this, so this is what this is, right? Oh, hi, Chris. Real sorry. <laughs> uh, but Danny had to do some reshoots. And so we need to reschedule, right? Oh. Of course, that meeting, that meeting was so fucking important to begin with, it never got rescheduled, right? So, so you know, what to take from this is that, number one, I never talked to, to, to Tommy, right, about this meeting or anything. It's, he had his girls calling and everything. But here's what I thought was just really bizarre, right? These are Sony executives. These are the guys that essentially Tommy works for, right? And so I'm going over there as part of Lauren Hill's entourage. I don't have any official meetings or anything, right? But but the idea that 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 Tommy would fabricate this ruse to keep me from getting on a plane to go to, to, to Japan because he felt threatened that I would be talking to Sony executives. Like, you know, the thing is, man, just thinking about myself and everything, it's like, who the fuck am I? You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't, what, what, like, why would any of the Sony executives like, give a shit about me? I'm not running Sony music, you know, because well, I, 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 I had some successful artists. So, so what, was he afraid that they're going to offer me his job? You know what I mean? That was like, that's what I thought was so absurd about the whole thing, yeah. you know? And it was like a lot of shit. Like um, the, um, you know, the very first promo picture we took, I think it was like with Tommy was with, uh, with was crisscross, right? Yeah. We took the picture with some event it was crisscross. It was, it was uh, Donnie, Tommy, the kids. And I forgot, I was, I guess I was over on the left next to Donnie, right? Uh, the picture comes out in Rolling Stone magazine about, I don't know, like uh, two weeks later. And I'm not in the picture. Uh. Right? So I got a hold of the person who did the layout for Rolling Stone. And I said, you know, nothing for nothing. Was it really like, were you that tight on space that you had to cut me out of the picture? And he was like, this is how we got the picture. Oh. Right? And here's the crazy thing. He goes, he goes, believe me, this isn't the first time we've had this conversation uh, about these people. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it was like, you know, but anyhow, it's, uh, it's the record business, yeah. right? And uh, it's not a finishing school up there. But that was like, that really bummed me out because I, I cannot believe I till the, to this day that I missed that trip based on that bullshit, you know? Yeah. Well, for some reason, he didn't want you there. Uh, I, I think probably some insecurity, et cetera. Definitely. Uh, yeah. So it's a, I, I remember uh, reading that in, in your book and I thought I was like, man, this guy, sometimes when you're living, you're on top of the world, you still have all these insecurities and you're always afraid that somebody's you're always looking behind your, uh, over your shoulder. Maybe there's somebody else. Maybe, and it's all in your head. I know. I get it. I get. It. That's how that business is, yeah. right? I get it. But what, what was, uh, what was bad about it was that you know, uh, I didn't really have any aspirations to work for a major company, sure. right? Yeah. And um, so that was like that was it. Like, why would I want that fucking job? You know? And no, number one, I don't think I could have done it. Right. Because I don't I don't have the experience in the, in the cross the board, you know, expertise and skills to run a major music, you know, behemoth like Sony Music. Right. That's the kind of thing that like, you know, but. 
you know, it was just, uh, it was just stupid. And, and I don't know. I, uh, I, I feel like, I, I, I feel like it was like when you, I felt, I felt violated. Like, you know, it's like, it's like, okay, so that's our relationship then. It's like you're, you're willing to go that far. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's, I thought it was very short-sighted. Yeah. It sounds like Hollywood. A lot of that kind of stuff happens uh, out, yeah. out in Hollywood that, you know, you get kissed in the cheek and they get stabbed in the back right in the same night. So uh, what was that movie? The producer? Yeah. <laughs> Robbins. Yeah. What a great movie. Exactly. What a great film, man. It's like So, so much truth. I, I want to ask you a question about feeling. So you have this label, uh, Rough House Records, and you sign these two kids, crisscross, and they make, first of all, I, I remember, uh, you know, House of Pain giving some, some grief about it's a jump or the jump around there. And they were tripping out over that, but the success that you had, I mean, with that, with that song and, you know, those kids, like, how did it feel in that moment being in that storm? Uh, it was bizarre. Uh, and I'll say this, my, um, I, they, so we did a video. So we recorded this album. When we signed the group, um, there was a song, Little Boys in the Hood, right? And the whole thing with them, we started out as a singles deal because it was supposed to be this kind of like these 11 and 12 year old uh, kind of looking at, look at, look at the neighborhood and everything and taking this introspective view of like, do I want to be a gangster or do I want to be like Mr. Smith who owns the bank or this, you know, whatever, but you know, whatever the, their visible role models were, but there were drug dealers as role models because they got the rims and clothes and the girls and the cash and everything like that. So that's what I thought was like, we were doing something really cool and unique. Right. And I feel so stupid talking about it now because um, that idea went right out the window. Yeah. <laughs> we started making, making the record. And, um, it was the last record as of the project, as it always is, that uh, that they did jump. But the the thing that made the the claim kind of absurd. Now, for me, you know, even though Questlove said that there's a lot of the same drum elements and everything in the tracks, the tracks sound nothing alike to me, right? Um, the other thing is that, like, you know, Joe Joe would would not, Joe. That's not his. That's not his DNA to go stealing something. You know what I mean? From somebody else too. It was just, he'd be too embarrassed to do it. And plus Joe wasn't the producer. Jermaine was right. Um, so, so, you know, a lot of records happened over that, 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 that whole thing. Uh, Jermaine was the first uh, producer under the age of 18 to have a multi-platinum record. Uh, the record itself was the fastest selling um, at the time, the fastest selling um, physical product for hip hop. And so, so they 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 do this record, but we haven't done anything. We haven't gone on the radio. And one night I went out and I don't know what I did, but uh, you know I got home and um, I was really hungover. And so my wife and I went down to the diner, and my wife was giving me a bunch of shit. And we're talking there at the table, and I told her like, Shh, I hear something because I heard somebody talking about crisscross. Right? They had performed on in Living Color the night before. And the guy sitting there was in his like, you know, upper middle ages. And he was going on and on and on and on and on about Christmas. He thought it was the greatest thing he ever saw. Right. And it was like, it was a steam. It was like a locomotive. You can't stop. It, you know? Um, yeah. The, uh, the, the amazing thing was that 
I could get in my car and I could find it playing on, on one of four radio stations at any given time throughout the day or night. It just, it just didn't end, you know? And so House of Pain, they had a song called Jump. Yeah. And so their manager called me up one day and she goes, uh, you know, uh, I heard you guys have a song called Jump. So I went and got a copy of it. It sounds just like our version. You stole it from us. I said, wait, 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 Amanda. How do we steal it from you if you never heard it? She goes, oh, well, you stole it from like um, when, when we gave you the original demo for House of Pain because you guys passed on it, right? Well, first off, literally the night before this conversation, I remember seeing the cassette in the studio for office because I wanted to keep track of it, you know, and I made a mental note of where it was. Right. And I basically, I said, Amanda, hold on one second. Right. And I went back over to the office. I'm looking around and finally I find, I find it. Right. I take it back to my desk and I say, you know, Amanda, I'm looking at this cassette. Right. And I see the second song, third song, and, and maybe a fourth song, right? But it was a, you know, space created for large people. I said, Amanda, what song is it? She goes, well, it's called Jump. I said, song's not on here, right? And she, um, she, you know, she said, oh, well, you're lying. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, I'm lying now, right? I said, the fucking song's not on here. We never got the song. So we never got the song. We never heard the song. How do we steal it? You know? And the thing is, I don't even think Everlast, because Muggs, you know, Muggs didn't believe we did it. And, and not only that, I think Everlast was obviously, you know, upset. He had every good reason to be. But, you know, it was, Amanda, it was Amanda's way of, like, chilling him out was to be able to pass focus of the blame. And she, you know, like, she had this partner named Happy. Happy, a very cool guy, right? But... You know, they used to do something I found very unnerving is that they would call, one of them would call, and I would be talking to the person, Happy or Amanda, for um, like seven, eight, now nine minutes are going past, we're in this whole thing. And then suddenly the other one would talk. They'd been sitting there the whole time listening, but without making their presence known to me, right? which I thought was really bizarre, right? And at one point I said, if you guys do this again, I'm just going to hang up and that'll be it, right? And, you know, I suddenly realized, I found out later on that the reason that they did it is because they didn't trust each other. They didn't want, they, you know, they, it was this whole weird thing with them. But, um, but Jermaine Dupri produced it anyway, so that wouldn't have made a difference. That, well, and House of Pain was, uh, that, that song was huge for them. So there was yeah, room for I both. know, I know it. And Jermaine produced, not only did Jermaine produce it, Jermaine, I think I just mentioned this, he was the first producer under the age of 18 to have a multi-platinum record. He not only produced it, he wrote it, okay? The crisscross Kids, everything they did on that record, Jermaine had them doing that syllable by syllable, right? So, so that's the whole thing. Like on, on the level that Jermaine's at, you don't need to steal shit, you know? And... um. You know, that's why the whole thing was just stupid. All right. So I have another question. The first time I met you, and I'm sure you don't remember this because, <clears throat> first of all, I used to have long hair and I'm follically challenged now. <clears throat> and, I, and this was back in, uh, I'd say, the very early 90s, maybe even 90, maybe 91. Right. When uh, at Revival Nightclub, 
So I was friendly with the manager revival, Greg, who you- Greg, uh, yeah, Greg, he's my buddy. Exactly. So uh, Greg, so what was happening was when uh, Cypress Hill's album came out, we got the cassette and we drove to Daytona Beach, Florida for MTV Spring Break. And we played that cassette over and over and over. And uh, Be Real was on the show, so I, I, I couldn't believe he remembered this whole thing. But basically, they performed at the MTV Spring Break in Daytona. And uh, <clears throat> they, Florida was really, it was really difficult for them to get weed there. So I was walking down, and they had a little sign on their balcony where we were staying, got weed. So I was like, I whistled to them. I'm like, hey, what's up? And nobody knew who they were. And long story short, they invited us up. And we hung out with them and Muggs taught me how to roll blunt. And we, uh, and then uh, that was it. And then I mentioned this to Greg when I was back in Revival. And, and he said, hey, by the way, they're doing a small show somewhere. Would you want to go? And that's when uh, you, I don't remember where it was in Philly. <clears throat> Maybe it was even Revival, but uh, he was, a, he introduced me to you. No, 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 no. You know what it was? Yeah. They did a concert. Yeah. yeah. And then we had an after party. That's I, it. I had the nightclub. That's I it. I had a nightclub down on uh, <laughs> South Street. Oh, what? A, I got ripped off the mob. They took me <laughs> for like 150 grand, Joe and I. I mean, that was so stupid. Yeah. But uh, yeah. It was a nightclub. Down. You're absolutely right. I remember. It, it was, was called Nicolay's. It was above. And hey, here's the thing. We're such genius. It was on the second floor. Show, right? It was on the second floor uh, somewhere. Right. Yep. We opened up a nightclub that <laughs> starts playing music at like 930 at night. And we decide to do this over a tower bookstore, right? <laughs> That's right. Which was such right. morons we were, right? Like, uh, yeah, gee, this should work, right? <laughs> Literally, the very first minute we turn that stereo on, right? <laughs> Dudes from Tower Books come running up. It's like, yo, man, it's like, you know? And uh, yeah, that that was dumb. I remember but, it. Um, exactly it yeah all right so that's yeah. so the state Brazil. so i'm super grateful i got to see that after party and hang out with them again and you know that, that that was incredible but uh that's uh you know that's our connection second connection is the goats so i was yeah. i loved the goats and i could not believe that these guys didn't make it and you talk a little bit about uh that in the book but man just an incredible experience and there were two groups yeah, two groups on uh, on Rough House that, and you know what really well, okay, sucks talk, about it? Don't don't mention the second one because that's my next one. Uh, all right, uh, all right, but but we but the thing is, I was friends with all these people, yeah. right? This was beyond just a regular, you know, because the big the bigger artists I never see these guys, right? Because they're they're not from Philadelphia, but these guys were like we're talking like they practically lived at my house, you know. We and so they did the first record. And uh, I'll tell you a, um, a, uh, a, a, a little bit of a, of a fun fact here that the goats, after they broke up for the next, till the end of, you know, Rough House, we got more fan mail throughout the globe on the goats than Cypress, Criss Cross, Fuji's, everybody combined. Wow. I, I, and that's the crazy thing about the goats. It's like they have this every, you know, every podcast interview I've ever done, I've done like 50 of them now since I wrote my book. There's a, there's two acts that people always want to ask you about. They want to talk about the goats and cool Keith, right? Oh yeah. Cool Keith. Absolutely too. But I mean, the, the goats, I, I thought they were so innovative, so great and such a great live act. I remember they played 
made my memory uh, fails me. I'm pretty good at remembering these things. I think they played in Silk City. I know Quest was uh, playing drums there uh, once in a while. And then uh, they were playing. And then Slick Rick uh, came. And he just got out of jail. And he came on stage. And I was I think I told this story before. But uh, he asked, uh, I just got out of jail. Anybody have any weed? And I was standing in front. I had a joint. <laughs> so I got a chance to smoke uh, a joint with uh, Slick Rick. Right. He joined the uh, the goats, but man, <clears throat> what an amazing band. And I, I know uh, there was some substance abuse issues uh, there with uh, some of the guys, if I remember correctly, but was that, was that the reason why they broke up? Uh, we all had substance abuse issues. I was, I was right in there with them. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was basically, it, it happened. Um, it happened the morning of, uh, we, we, we just did the second record and we were going to shoot the video and um, I don't know how somebody uh, had decided to 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 designate one particular member with being in charge of the van and the per diem money, but they did. And uh, he disappeared, and then that was it, you know. And uh, but 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 I am now in the process of trying to get a new Ghost record together. Oh man, I that would be fantastic. I would love that. Those guys uh, were, were amazing. Sways and those guys. Yeah. All right. So I have another story for you in another intersect. Uh, I was uh, in uh, Revival in uh, in the bathroom. I was dating this girl. I, I used to have a fake ID that said I was a little bit older than uh, than I was. And she was of, right. of age. And if, for those of you to know, Revival had a unisex bathroom. So in this unisex bathroom, I'm in the stall and she's uh, she's outside. And then I hear this guy really hitting on her hard. And then he's getting super aggressive with her. Uh, and I got out of the stall. I'm like, yo, man, you know, what's up? And this my girl. And, you know, did the typical Philly thing. And uh, he's like, uh, yeah, you know, my name is Carl. And then he started, like, persisting, say all this bullshit. So I'm like, you know what? I'll meet you outside. And uh, went, got my friends, uh, went downstairs, wasn't outside yet. And uh, I couldn't find my, my good friends. I found these two other guys I knew. And I pointed him out and he goes, oh, no, no, no. We know these guys are a band. You know, don't fuck with them. I'm like, okay. All of a sudden, this guy came up to me with long black hair and he punched me. And I was like, all right. So that was Kevin. That was Exactly. Kevin. That was Kevin. You're absolutely right. That was Kevin. The reason, the reason I know it was Kevin, <laughs> the reason I know, because, because I was in. We were in Germany and this guy was like in his like seventies and he comes to me, he's weaving up to me, like really drunk. And he goes and he's, and I'm, I had my head turned and he goes to like, and Kevin stopped him. Right. Yeah. And then the guy goes to hit a Kevin and Kevin punched it. But, but see, that was like, that wasn't cool for like, you know, without knowing what was going on for him to come up and hit you like that. Um, you know, it's funny, man. It's like Kevin. Well, you know the story, so you can ask me and I'll tell you. Well, I, I, but, you know, let, Kevin, let me let me get it. Uh, let me set this up so you can tell the story. I, I, I'm going to I'm going to finish my like part and you can say why, because I didn't even mention who the band was yet. Uh, but anyway, so there's Big J, there's Bouncer outside and they said the guys are outside. We won't, we're not going to interfere. We came up and we we had a big fight. So my friend Eric uh he hit Carl, and then I was fighting Kevin. And I had him on the ground, and uh, we were fighting. And I feel somebody hitting me in the back of the head. 
And I didn't know who it was. And I kind of hit him off. And I went to see my girlfriend afterwards. Uh, Kevin was on the ground. And she goes, oh, my God. I'm like, what's going on? You're bleeding. I'm like, what's happening? And so my head was busted open. I had long hairs out of this clump of hair was bleeding and went back to fight again. But what happened was uh, I went back to revive after I got my head stitched up. And Jake comes up to me. He's like, hey, the guy that hit you is here. He wants to talk to you. Uh, I said, okay. So bring him over. The guy that hit me comes over, leather jacket, long hair. His name was Sloan. So Sloan uh, was a guy he said that was doing security for the band called Dandelion. And he basically said, hey, I didn't want to hit you. He hit me with a bottle first, broke it over my head. Uh, and I still, I guess, was was still fighting. And then he ended up hitting me with a blackjack and splitting my head open. But he apparently managed the Trocadero. And he said he was doing his job. He was just, uh, you know, uh, doing security, trying to break up the fight. And he said, uh, if you I still want to fight him, I can. But here's his number. He wrote it down. And he's like, anytime you want to go to a show, just call me. And I got you. So at the end of the day, I kind of, uh, you know, got something out of it. But that guy, anyway, the band is called Dandelion. I just want to tell that story. And uh, right. some of the stories that you told in the book about them kind of reflected so personally towards me, especially as you knew Kevin, because he was sort of that right. type. <laughs> yeah, well, here's the thing, man. Kevin now, yeah, I don't even recognize him as being the same person. I'm not talking about in physicality. I'm talking about in just... He's like the sweetest guy in the world. And, you know, and I'll tell him if he was sitting here, it's like, I, you know, I'm sure he knows, but it's like he used to be a absolute douchebag back in the day because, you know, this was, as you know, this was like the era of the, you know, Nirvana and the, and it was all about anti-record labels, right? Anti-record labels. And it's like, you know, I, um, I kind of felt like, you know, we, we would, here's his, here's my problem with it is that Kevin told me one time, he said, he said, you know, you guys just want us to, you guys want us to go out and have platinum records, right? We just want to play clubs. And I was like, well, if you just wanted to play clubs, why even sign with a label like us? Is that kind of killing a mosquito for howitzer? Right. But what, but what this whole thing was like, it was like, you guys just care about making money, blah, 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 right? But at the end of the day, I always noticed when it came, when it came to giving them money and like, you know, re-recording, renegotiating the record contract, their socialist values went right out the window. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, so it was kind of like, you know, I don't know, man, I didn't get it. I didn't get it. Well, I, I mean, I, I listened, I... It, like probably last week or when I was sort of preparing to this, I went back on YouTube and listened to some Dandelion. Man, they were good. The music was good. Oh my God. They, you know, I, you know, they, um, we put out that song weird out and then the album and the album, uh, went to number six on the modern rock charts. Right. And, um, and then it all fell apart within a couple of weeks. And here's what had happened was, um, the, the rock charts, right, um, you know, like any other major chart, the way that they program these charts is that they all the program directors from across the country get together on this one big conference call, and there's like 120 people, right? So that's the panel, okay? So it's a modern rock panel, right? And half the panel really liked the band. 
The other, other half of the panel thought they were like bullshit. They thought they were put together. So this was the dilemma, right, that, that, that Sony was contending with, but they thought they were going to overcome it, right? So what happened was they do the song, and then they, they go, uh, the song got played like 65 times in like five days at uh, Chicago's Modern Rock Station. So they got invited out there, the headline Weenie Roast, or whatever they call those concerts, right? So the band was supposed to leave at like six in the morning, and they did not leave till two o'clock the following morning from Philadelphia. When they got to the venue, right, the uh, program director for the station putting on the show said, uh, you know, you guys are like, you know, like five, six, seven hours later, whatever. And Kevin's reply to him was like, <laughs> classic Kevin Vashon. He said, he goes, you're fucking lucky we're even here. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, so there was that, right. Then they did a show up in Connecticut and the uh, guy interviewing him, doing the interview, uh, basically Kevin was like rolling his eyes at the guy, right? They were so pissed off that, that they not only did they not come to their own show that they were sponsoring the radio station, the guy basically went on the pan, you know, they went on the panel and talked shit about the band. And that, that was it. You know, there wasn't much more that could be done, you know? Yeah, so I mean, there, I guess there's a fine line between being being like a rock guy, oh, you know, fuck uh, the labels, and then just being a total douchebag. You gotta, you gotta right. find a little niche for yourself, <laughs> right? Uh, so, uh, I mean, Cypress Hill. I, I just, I just brushed like where the start is. We talked about crisscross, then Cypress Hill. Uh, I mean, Fuji's. And then, uh, I mean, Lauren Hill, besides Fuji's blown up, which was like huge and amazing. Well, yeah, Fuji is the biggest selling, biggest selling hip hop album in the world yeah. by a group. And uh, she has the biggest selling solo hip hop record in the world. But, you know, it's like I have to I want to take a minute here to just talk about Cypress real quick. Because, um, you know, because I'm sitting in front of this thing behind me. Right. So Cypress, um, this is her 10th album. And um, here's the simple reality of it. They are the most successful legacy hip-hop touring act of all time. They are the uh, biggest-selling Latino hip-hop act in the world. They're the first Latino hip-hop act to get a uh, Hollywood star. They're the eighth, uh, no, the ninth hip-hop act to ever get a Hollywood star. Um, and, you know, it's just amazing to watch, like, from when these guys started. You know, you, you know how, you know, I, I always say, you know, that, we didn't sign them. They signed us because they were our first gold record, yeah, right? Yeah. And when they signed with us, we didn't have shit going on, right? But the reason they went with us is because every day there was like three, four possibly other labels that wanted to sign them. And every label said, well, you can't talk about this and you're going to have to do this and do this and do this and do this and that. And they were like, then money didn't become an issue. They were like, fuck it. I ain't doing that. Right. We offered them a singles deal. Then it got made into a, a, um, an EP deal. Then it became an album deal. Right. But that first record, I think we signed them for like $85,000, you know, and, um, and, you know, to see them go to this, the level of success, I mean, and, you know, uh, they, they have this documentary coming out um, on 420 on Showtime. 
And um, one of the producers, because they interviewed me for it at our vinyl pressing plant, one of the producers said to me, he said, you know, Chris, this is the first time ever I've worked with a hip hop artist where I show up and they're here before me. You know, they, they take their gig really seriously, you know, and they um, and they're just. You know, somebody asked me the other night on, on a podcast, they said, who was the easiest group that you liked? Most? Well, there wasn't about who I liked the most. The easiest artist I've ever worked with was Cypress. They don't miss departure points or at the airport on time. You know, they everything they do and they have a, you know, like like a lot of great artists, they have a self-contained vision of who they are. If you look at like how their their iconography, their logos and everything, like, you know, over the years, it's just the whole thing is just really cool. And, um, and I, uh, and uh, this is this year's, but, you know, we have a, this is a big record we have with them. And, um, you know, this uh, be real sent me a, uh, a text the, the, uh, the day before yesterday. And cause they had entered one in, uh, in, in, and they're number two in Europe and number one in, in the United States. He sent me this, this text saying, he goes, I just want to thank you for believing in us a second time. Right. Because we started this project like two and a half years ago and we were going to sign with this one label and negotiations took really long. And the label just finally had like deal exhaustion. They said, ah, we're not doing this. That very day I got them another deal. But I'd have my, my the label I have now set up. So we did a uh, distribution deal. But, um, you know, it's uh, it's just the the everything they do. There's no no attention to detail that's left unchecked, you uh, know? <clears throat> um, I, I love that because first of all, I'm a humongous Cypress Hill fan, but also just the, the, the people like B and, and, and sent, I mean, I, I only met mugs once, so I don't know, but they're, they're really good people. And, and mugs it, is cool as shit. Yeah. And they're talented, man. Super talented. And even the work that B did with profits of rage with Chuck D and all that stuff. I mean, yeah, Amazing. It's always been relevant. We just saw them, I don't know, a couple months ago uh, with the Z trip opening. I mean, I mean, just as you said, pros always, always uh, there, uh, showing up and uh, and performing in in the best way possible. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad yeah. you brought that up. Well, you, you know, it's crazy. And I was talking with their manager about this like not too long ago. People, on the whole, even in the record business do not know how big they really are. And when I say, when I say big, I'm talking about from a touring perspective. It's like, it's crazy. It's crazy. And it's like, you know, be real said uh, yesterday in the hip hop DX article, or it may have been this morning. He said, you know, it's not now hip hop. Isn't just a young man's game anymore. Right. If you look at it, you know, we signed, uh, we have Onyx with a new album. We have, uh, we're doing diggable planets. Uh, abstract mind state. Uh, uh, I'm doing um, 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 ultra magnetic MCs. Really? Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, Arrested Development. And they, their records doing cool. My God, really well. There's other artists I'm just forgetting right now. Styles P and Havoc uh, from Mob Deep and Lops. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> I'm missing. Oh, oh, Rick Hyde. El Camino, mm. Cool G Rap. I got two RZA records. I've got the new Bobby Digital of RZA, produced by DJ Scratch, and I got RZA and the Flatbush Zombies. You know, it's it, it's a lot of you know. It's funny. 
you know, the, the, the record business in 1978, that was the record year or the history for vinyl sales, the history of the business, right? So 334 million records, right? They say if the industry had the capacity to meet consumer demand for 2021, we would be at over 400 million records, right? So when you look at this, though, compared to what I was doing in the 90s, right? Right. I've got, you know, right now I've got about like 15 records on schedule coming out and I'm doing deals for another. But the business itself and the physical business is bigger now than it was back then. Yet in 2000, it died a horrible death. Right. And, uh, you know, so it's really exciting. Well, it's it's Um, great for the industry to be able to shift. It's, uh, It's fantastic. And now vinyl is back which i love yeah. because i'm a huge vinyl guy and like i see my daughter i have a 17 year old daughter and kids her her and kids her age they're buying vinyl now i mean i don't even know if they're listening to the vinyl no they're <laughs> not I, we, you know we, you know we have a vinyl pressing plant right well no now i do <laughs> yeah well that's the whole thing it's a, the, the the majors tore down all their plants so the only people pressing records are companies like us and there's only i think about 40 of us, right? And then they, they're getting everything done over at uh, Czech Republic and uh, Croatia. The, uh, it's gotten, it's really, really like crazy. It's crazy. But the biggest deficit in terms of market is what you're going to have a tough time finding when you go out there are really hip hop records because yeah. the, the majors aren't pressing them and you know they're being prioritized. And that's where I kind of felt like, okay, this is my opportunity, you know? Well, I, I mean, I'm so grateful for that. And if you ever need an intern to help you with anything, I'll, I'll be happy to intern for you. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's right. that's my then, thing, man. I just love uh, anything I can do that's music related, and especially with vinyl. It's uh, it's fantastic. Well, well, you're talking about vinyl, but you're right. They, uh, they're, not, they're not opening it. As a matter of fact, vinyl... Vinyl is 64% of people buying vinyl records don't own turntables. They're just, you know, putting in poly bags and sticking it away. So yeah, I, have, I have three of them. I do have collector vinyl that when I used to work at Tower Records, we would get some really interesting vinyl. So I kept those. But man, vinyl is one of my favorite things to do is I have this room in my house, my music room. I have a bunch of vinyl. I have my record player and I paint also. So I'll, I'll smoke a joint. I'll put on my vinyl and I'll paint Whatever it is that's the feeling that I'm getting from the album that I'm listening, man, that is my meditation. There's nothing better than that. Right. And then I look at the liner notes and all that other stuff, but, you know, kids don't do that these days. Uh, I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned, you know, substance abuse and stuff. And I, I think, right. you know, for 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 audience to know how you can go from, you know, the heights that you, you were uh, at, then be able to, uh, you know, to overcome the challenges that come from substance abuse and then be able to resurrect yourself and get back to that. Maybe you can talk a little bit about. Well, it's, it's the thing is all throughout most of my success, I was high, you know? Um, and, and the thing is, it's like what I had come to realize it's like, is, you know, I carry a lot of demons around with me, a lot of dark energy from my childhood, sure. but I also was like, I kept, thinking something bigger was going to keep happening. Right. Mm. 
I was waiting for something bigger to happen, right? It wasn't big you enough. Know, we made a movie. <laughs> the the largest movie album in, in the world, all that stuff. Uh, it wasn't. Well, that was the whole thing. I'll, I will confess that there was a time that we showed up to Columbia Records for a meeting with somebody. And we walked into their, their group, big group meeting room and everybody started clapping. And it's like, why is everybody clapping? And it's because um, the one Cypress Hill record shipped like 649,000 copies over the counter. And, and I remember thinking, oh, yeah, that's cool. Because I, I, I hate to say it, man, but at the time I was like, it was routine. You know what I mean? Like we had, we were, we were constantly having gold and platinum records, right? Um, and and I kept thinking, and I would try to do some stuff in the film business. I made a, I made a movie of Zoe Saldana and Frank Vincent from Goodfellas and Dean Winters. And that movie, we did it. I spent like, oh man, personally, I spent a lot of money on it, right? And uh, it had it had uh, it had uh, Nelly in it, right? Country grammar. So we put direct, we put this film out. And we did the whole thing. We four-walled it. We did like the, the premieres and the whole thing. And it went on BET once and that was it, right? We did a deal with uh, New Line Cinema. And so New Line Cinema, the rights reverted back to me about a year ago. And, uh, and uh, the um, Breaking Glass, Richard Wolf, who's got a company in Philadelphia, my, my production partner, Rich Murray, took it to Rich Wolf. And he goes, you think you can do anything with this? And uh, it is coming out on Showtime May 1st. Uh, awesome, man. Congrats. That's great. Yeah, so that's crazy, isn't it? It's like one of those things that, you know, but my point being is that that was like an attempt to try and do something, you know, I just wanted to keep, and uh, and that's from being in a diminished capacity, so. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you <clears throat> about Tim Dog. Uh, what your thoughts uh, on Tim Dog? Like, if I remember correctly when that, you know, this track, I guess, the way you were referred uh, to uh, from the West Coast came out, and right. it was it was well, huge on the East it Coast. Was, it was it was pretty hairy, you know. Um, I took the attitude that like if if an artist on my label wants to make a record, I'm not the PMRC, you know, and everything. And it's like, who am I to tell him no, right? Tim Dog, here's the thing: that record, from a performance pr- perspective, and a and a production perspective, like anybody who knows hip hop, like that record, like has a special place, but also it was the first ever music video that was sold as a VHS, a single song VHS music video, right? First time ever in history. And we sold over a hundred thousand copies of them at 999, right? But I think what happened like with Tim was that he kind of did one thing. And that is he uh, he hollers at you over two sides of a record, right? And it got that was right right at the kind of turning point where where the where the audience started to become more of like a it was very similar to like it be the, the audience became um, an album oriented audience. It was it came it started to get conceptual, right? Like kind of like the way FM rock underground FM rock was, right? And um, and Tim. Would come, he comes from the ultramagnetic camp and that traditional hip-hop thing, and I think he just wasn't saying enough that it was attracting new people, you know? Yeah, I, I think uh, it was that one song, and that was it, and he thought he could ride on that. And I don't think the people on the West Coast really, they don't really see it as a huge 
this. I mean, from my friends that I talked about, are like, ah, yeah, whatever. It's uh, you guys are just chirping, uh, but they didn't really. It, it wasn't. No, nah, it was enough. bad. Yeah, I, I could believe. You know, it's funny. At one point, I was like, Tim. I mean, it's like you know, you can't go out to the way he actually did go out to the West Coast. Oh yeah. I like, <laughs> yeah, I was like, God, were you out of your mind? You know. But the thing is, though, the people that matter, like Dr. Dre and those guys. Yeah. You know how you know how they dealt with it by not dealing with it. Uh, they just in other words, in other words, they let him have his bark and it went away. Right. But but the only the, 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 the only way they could make it worse would be to to, um, you know, to to engage, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's a, an unfortunate end uh, too. so. Um, yeah. I have a couple more. So Beanie Siegel. Uh, so yes. if I. T- tell me a little about what your relationship was. And I, if I remember correctly, he was living in a halfway house and then uh, he got shot uh, as well. If I remember. Correctly. No, 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 I wasn't. No. I can't, I can't really speculate. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I know what happened, but I'm not, I'm not getting, I, I couldn't do that on, on this. Right. But um, he, uh, here's the thing. I didn't know Beanie and them. I mean, obviously I knew who they were, but I didn't know him during his like, you know, his, uh, his, uh, rock nation days. Right. And so I had done a deal with, uh, EMI, a distribution deal. And somebody said, Hey, uh, Beanie Siegel, you know, do this. So I called him up and he, uh, he, he, I thought like he didn't know who I was. Right. And I started saying, well, look, you know, I did this record and, you know, come to my, he was, Oh, I know exactly who you are. So we have a, uh, we have dinner at the, um, at the uh, Olive Garden on City Line Avenue, right? And we decided to do this record, and he's got 16 songs. We're going to mix 12 of them, and, you know, it's still all simple and easy, right? We do all that and then find out that he, a couple things. He didn't own any of the songs, right? And he thought people were just going to roll over and give him the songs. So after we manufactured CDs, we have people calling us, lawyers, managers, producers, engineers. Hey, that's not, that ain't his song. That ain't his song, right? And then, um, and then what made it worse was that I get called down to his lawyer's office in Center City, and they proceed to tell me that he was found guilty of income tax evasion, and they were waiting to sentence him, and they've been pushing it off for months. And now the, the due date was come approaching, and we asked the judge, you know, we did everything to try and, you know, but the judge said, you know, it's not going to happen. He goes, I got all these letters, but, you know, it's, it's, it's going to jail is a very likely possibility today. So they sentenced him. However, the judge gave us eight weeks to go out and market and promote the record. We had him booked on Jimmy Kimmel and all this stuff. And then, you know, he, he got into trouble that night and that was it. Yeah. Okay. So we'll leave it. We'll leave it at that. I got it. I, yeah, but, you know, I'll tell you what, man, I'll tell you what, though. He, 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 he was a, I, I believe that he spawned a whole new kind of subgenre of gangster hip hop. And when I say gang, the stuff, when you look at uh, like, like, uh, like Benny, Benny the Butcher and the Griselda guys and all that stuff, yeah, it's all, it all emanates from, from prison speak, right? It's like, you know, if you listen to songs, it's all about like how they, they use, um, like, you know, the current street vernacular to kind of describe how they, 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 their business and everything like that. I, I kind of feel like that, that, that uh, Beanie was really one of the pioneers in that whole thing, you know? 
Yeah, it's a, an incredible town and, and really made a, a huge impact on the hip hop community. Uh, and there's a lot of people who he influenced, as you, as you just said. Uh, how did you meet Nas? Greg McGarra used to bug me at five in the morning about this record called Live at the Barbecue. And he said, you got to hear this guy, Nas. I'm listening to it. And the kid's incredible. But it's on, looks, looks to me, he's on the Wild Pitch. It's on Wild Pitch Records, right? And uh, and then about two weeks later, after the last time we had listened to it, uh, Donnie Einer from Columbia called me and he goes, MC Search and uh, Faith Newman, who's an A&R person at Columbia, want to meet with you about this artist, Nas. And I couldn't believe it. So we come down and we meet. We do this deal. Uh, we start making record. We put out the single Halftime that went to number one on the Hot Rap Singles chart. And uh, Dave, uh, John Schechter from The Source comes down to my office and uh, wants to hang out. And he goes, oh, by the way, did you sign Nas? I said, yeah. He goes, you got any music to hear? I said, yeah. And I got a couple songs. I gave to him. I said, don't play it for anybody. You know, be cool. He's like, yeah, I've known John. And it's like, yeah, from Philadelphia. So that night, uh, Dave Mays, John's uh, partner, and Dave is the one who runs The Source, calls Donnie Einer and says, we're putting Nas on the cover of The Source. Now, he didn't even have a record out yet. Right. So that started this whole thing with, with Sony. And basically they didn't want to sign him. The reason they gave him to us is because they could deduct any potential losses from our pipeline revenues of the millions of dollars that they owed us. So that was a uh, pretty, you know, I don't know. We did for Donnie because he was in a lot of hot water with Tommy, you know, and uh, he, we, Donnie showed us all these fax messages from Tommy to calling him a fucking asshole, you know, for letting this happen and all that. And so, is what it is, right? Well, I think he did okay for himself. Nas, Nas yeah. okay. <laughs> I, pre- I pressed up Nas's uh, record, uh, King's Disease too. Oh, wow. I, I love 15,000 double album sets. Love it. That's great, man. It's yeah. such a great album. Um, are you still in contact with Lauren Hill? Miss Hill? Yes. Okay. So if you, if and when you talk to her next, I'm just curious because I see her every single time she performs uh, she's late most of the time, and then she redoes the songs in the in a in a different arrangement. Uh, not not this last two years. No, yeah. she's done she's done the miseducation pretty pretty consistently. But I know what you're talking about. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I I'll, I'll tell you what it is. Uh, her position is that if I have to play these songs the way they are on the record, she goes then nobody's going to like this show because I'll be dead of boredom. You know, I see that was as her whole thing. She goes, I will die of boredom. Right. And, but you know, what's interesting is that have you ever seen Led Zeppelin? Well, so I'm, I'm 50. Uh, I've never seen the right. complete so you probably Led Zeppelin. saw Robert Plant. I saw Robert Plant. I saw, I saw no yeah. quarter. I saw them with the Jason Bonham playing, but I never saw the full uh, with Bonzo on drums. I've never seen the original Led Zeppelin. But I know this, that people who I know and trust tell me that their live show, the songs, for the most part, sound nothing like the records. You know, Grateful Dead, nothing like the records, right? There's so many groups who go out and do it, but because of the type of songs and what the whole thing was about, people, you know, took issue. But I'll tell you this, man, she can do no wrong with her fans. She can do no wrong. Her fans are the most resilient, like, and she's got in the thing, like her and Cyprus, this crazy thing. 
I remember at one point, Scott Thomas, the booking agent in Philadelphia, said the three biggest hip-hop touring acts in the world, meaning who covers the most globe, are The Roots, Cypress Hill, Fuji's, and of course, Marnin. And because the thing is, you know, she doesn't have a marching band on stage. She doesn't have all this crazy shit. It's just her and a band and some backup singers, right? And she, anywhere, look, the most iconic music artist in the world, everybody says, oh, the Beatles, Michael Jackson, but no, Bob Marley, right? Bob Marley is known throughout more places on the face of God's great earth than any music artist out there. And anywhere that Bob Marley, there's a Bob Marley flag, pick, you know, planted is where she can, where she has an audience. And she's taken full, you know, uh, it's crazy. And her shows, you know, she's been out now going out for like 15 years doing shows. She doesn't have a big corporate management company. She doesn't have a record company. She didn't have any support. Like nobody there to put a pillow under her ass, right? And yet, yet, she she put with her shows and her agent said the biggest problem is that she treats every show like it's her wedding day. In other words, she will lose money on a show to make it the greatest show she can for the fans, far being late or whatever. Right. Right. I, I love once that. she's playing, once she's playing, it becomes like a religious experience. A hundred percent. I mean, I, I don't think I've yet missed a Lauren Hill show uh, that's local in L.A. And she really plays, and she plays small venues a lot, which is great. Because that's one of my favorite. I yeah. remember seeing her Nas open up for her. Uh, I mean, I, with with COVID, I kind of lost track of years. I don't really know, but uh, a few years ago, great show. When you hear the la- the last thing that she recorded for record was on this last Nas record on King's Disease Two. Uh, go listen to a song. Listen to it in headphones. It's called Nobody, and it's the first record that she like she's performed on like for me in a long time that i was like wow like it was it's just it's really powerful i I can't wait yeah thanks for that um what do you see as the future of music uh well we're 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 there's a this proliferation of uh the diy artists right and that's a big thing it's uh it's basically you're going to see more and more of like companies like Steve Stout's company and everything, uh, United Masters, where it's like, look, you know, an artist, new artists don't need a guy like me anymore, right? Because, and that's the thing, when people bring me artists, right, and they, they'll bring me something, and it's like I go and I look at their Spotify and they've got like two monthly listeners and like, you know, like really absurd numbers. And it's like, well, what is it that you think I can do that you can't do for yourself, right? The heavy lifting is building a social media following. The major late distribution power is any real label. If they're going to consider giving an artist money, right, based on, based on uh, you know, views and everything like that, what they're going to look at, they're going to look at their Spotify listener base, and they're going to look at their, um, at their YouTube subscription, uh, subscriber base, because they know at the very least, if you got 120,000, you know, YouTube subscribers, right? If you have that many, then if you put out a song, it doesn't do that well, you still got 120,000 people. You have a market. They want you to come to the table with a market. It used to be that major labels, we, we could tell people what to listen to and create markets for artists and everything. Those, those days are gone. Um, 
I basically, you know, I, I found my, my niche and I, and I'm really enjoying it. And that is, uh, I'm, I'm basically, um, you know, doing, doing, uh, seminal and classic hip hop artists doing vinyl, you know? And, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's it. And that's what I'm, I'm loving. Is there, is there any up and coming? I know you mentioned some, but is there anybody that's up and coming that you've been listening to? You're like, man, this is the next uh, kind of thing. There's a kid in LA. His name is, uh, it's I M A H A Z E R D. I'm a hazard. H A Z E R D. I'm a hazard. You can find him on uh, Instagram and he's also on TikTok. Um, every Friday he does, uh, um, of, uh, of 40, 40 bars, uh, is it for Friday, 40 bars. Right. And he drinks a 40, right. And he does it <laughs> He's in the studio. He does his thing. And I have to tell you this, he is probably one of the tastiest hip hop, you know, states of terms, rapping and everything like that. It's like he, he, it's old school, but it's new. It's just really, really well done, you know? And I don't even think he drinks. You know, he just, <laughs> he just like, I'm just not sure. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, I, 40 I'm, ounce Fridays. It's 40, ounce, 40 ounce Fridays. 40 yeah. ounce Fridays. I'm going to write that down. Um, speaking of, and I'll, I'll try to wrap this up, but I'm just so curious about this. What are your thoughts on, and I hate these labels, but this, uh, this mumble kind of, uh, uh, hip hop that was, uh, you know, they call it trap. I, I don't even know what label to give it. But uh, you know what? In, in, in the early '80s, right? I used to hear a bunch of shit because I had a drum machine from all these musicians and artists from the '60s and the '70s, right? So I kind of take it. Yeah, yeah. Look, do, do I love this shit? No, right? This this out. But I'm not going to be one of those people that's going to like shit on it just because I don't get it. You know what I mean? Because I look, I had my experience, right? We had our experiences as kids, you know. Look, I, I believe that people, you know, once when you start buying records, right, and once you're into your like, you know, your late teens and early twenties, that's it. Now your your musical taste and your musical inclinations and everything, it's set. You're not going to suddenly start buying something completely, you know. And that's it. That's why, you know, if you're marking a new artist, right. If you're not marketing this artist to kids, then who are you marketing it to? You know what I mean? There's been a few different things. I'll tell you another thing I'm excited about too is that is the proliferation of these really cool like bands that just play instrumental music. You know, um, like uh, Wolfpack, uh, like Snarky Puppy. Um, it's just it's it's amazing, it really is. And they're all over TikTok too. You, yep. These guys, like these, you know, it's it's very cool. That's that's the place, and I, like, and you're absolutely right. But what I try to do is I, I try to listen to like New Music Fridays on Spotify, and I'm like, right. I'll listen to all you know whatever 30, 40 new songs, and I'm like, maybe I'm old, but I just some of this stuff I don't get. It. I like one, maybe two, but a lot of them, and I, and I remember as you said, my parents. <laughs> but but <laughs> it's music your parents love to hate. But here's the thing. There, there's a lot of it. It started with Radiohead, right? And there, it can't be this whole thing. It's like just kind of like subtlety, right? That's in a lot of music. Like Billie Eilish, it's all subtlety, right? Um, I personally don't have a lot of patience for it, you know? I, if I'm going to hear it, I'm going to hear it in an electronic form and like, you know, like 
like the Chemical Brothers and, you know, Daft Punk and stuff like that. But there's just a lot of stuff. And there's another big thing now, too. It's like, it's like girls singing out of tune. What's that about? I don't know. I can't, I can't do it. It's, it's when I hear something, when I hear somebody singing out of tune, it makes my sphincter tighten up. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, I swear I can't take it. I, and the I, thing is, I was like, how, like, how, how, like this artist went into a studio and they're singing a song and they're singing out of tune and there's people in there. There's people behind it. There's people getting paid to run the board and to make sure that what they're doing makes sense. And everybody's like, yeah, oh, sounds great. Love it. You know? Yeah. My, 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 Biggest issue, I think, and, and once again, I don't want to be the old guy. It's like, oh, you know, these young whippersnappers, because I, I try to be current, but they don't listen to the lyrics. Like, I try to listen to the lyrics. And I ask my daughter, like, she does like Rex Orange County, who at least is a singer-songwriter, and some of, but some right. of the other stuff, I'm like, I, I don't even, I can't, what are well, they even saying? It's this, it's this. It's, um, well, okay, I'll tell you what they're saying. They can understand each other perfectly, mm-hmm. and here's what it is. You ever like watched uh, like a 14 year old kid talking to another 14 year old kid on the phone? <laughs> yeah. It's all yeah, acronyms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everything. It's like, it's like grunts and utterances and like, you know, like these like sub genre syllables and everything. It's not pig Latin. It's this very lazy form of communication because it's not cool to pronunciate. You know, it's very street. It's like this whole thing, like it's just as abbreviated shorthand that is like considered like almost like a gangster affectation. Uh, you know, it is it is what it is. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Who am I? Middle aged white guy <laughs> who is driving. Right. I, I'm, I keep my ears open. I just I love anything new. I don't want to be stuck like my dad. You know, listen to Pink Floyd and the Beatles, and he's still going to listen to Pink Floyd and the Beatles. And he doesn't listen to anything new. I don't want to be that uh, kind of uh, uh, person. Right. I want to be open to everything that's, that's new. Um, all right. So final question for you. Is there, looking back and reflecting on the past, and, and I know you're going forward with a lot of new and exciting things, is there anything that you would uh, change uh, about anything that has happened that you've done? Yeah. Oh my God. Where do I start? You know, if you, if you read the book, you know, I actually talk more about my failures than my successes, you know, and, um, and I'm pretty honest about it. You know, uh, when I started at Columbia records, uh, we were phenomenally successful, like almost in the first year there. And by the fourth year there, I was still conceding the things that I kind of knew or something, something that wasn't to my benefit, but I was too much of a pussy and I didn't realize how powerful I was, you know, at the time. So, yeah, there's a couple of things I'd have done different. <laughs> yeah, I, I highly recommend that people uh, buy and listen to your book. It, it was it was such a made first of all, you know, partially because I'm from Philly. Second of all, because I, I love the bands. Third of all, your story is it, it's a personal story, but it's. For me, it was a personal story of overcoming obstacles, constantly being resilient and having an obstacle and saying, finding a way to how to either go around it. And I just found it extremely inspirational. So I'm, I'm super grateful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And, and uh, Kristen, thank you so much for thank you. joining. Where can people contact you, find out more about what oh, you're doing? Oh, right, right, right. Okay. So um, my Insta is, uh, there's a couple Instagram accounts, but... Uh, it's Rough House 
Records, R-U-F-F-R-E-C-O-R-D-S-O-G. That's my Instagram account. Then there's a uh, Rough Nation Records official. That's uh, that's our, you know, we sell our gear. So, uh, but if you want to uh, look at the artists, um, you know, we got a, a Wu-Tang record with uh, Remedy. We got two RZA records. We got, I get a bunch of really great records. And uh, you can you can order them in the merchandise on uh, on the roughnationent.com. And it's entertainment. So E-N-T, roughnationent.com. And uh, my Twitter is rough underscore nation and um facebook is chris schwartz and uh so there is to it brother man i i just don't even know how to express my gratitude uh this was one of my favorite experiences so i'm super super grateful for uh, right. it was very it was cool it was cool you got you asked a lot of good questions man yeah. len thank you very much thanks brother appreciate it Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has kind of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects network. Network.